You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series. Will Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For long-time listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you're new to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and especially some of the more recent episodes that we have produced and that you may have missed. Speaking about past episodes, let me just start by apologizing a little bit for the late posting, especially on iTunes, but also a couple of the other podcast platforms of our most recent episode, number 100. Quite ironic, actually, that Jerry was joking a little bit that he was upset when uh, our episode comes out late. And of course, it turned out that this one came out a couple of days late since we had to figure out why some of the podcast platforms did not pick up the RSS feed. As I've now learned, and that's very important as part of your podcasting journey. Anyways, it's all fixed. It's all there for you. So go and check it out. If you missed it, it was a really good conversation that we had with Jerry. With that out of the way, let me say good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are things where you are? It must be a pretty good day to be in Munich given what happened last night. Pretty good day. Hey, Niels, how are you? It's it's a good day on many fronts. First off, it's sunny. And then secondly, I'm uh, dancing in my office because yesterday night, my home soccer slash football team, which is Bayern Munich, well, I think I can use the word destroyed Barcelona with an 8-2 victory, and they've made it into the semifinal of the Champions League. So very, very happy about that. Quite a win. Really amazing. So all good on that side. How are you? Yeah, doing pretty well back in Switzerland now, which is nice. It's hot. And I did enjoy the game as well, even though I had no vested interest like you had. And it is interesting how one team, a great team, of course, can make another world-class team look like a pretty ordinary team like that. But that's football, that's sports for you. It looked like it, yes. Yes, absolutely. It reminded a lot of people uh, of the um, Germany victory against Brazil in 2014. In the semifinals, I think it was 7-2 or 7-1. I don't remember the seven score. 7-1, Brazil, know, it's yeah. 7-1. One of these things where it's just like a freight train running through the soccer stadium and destroying the other team. I mean, it's you almost have to feel sorry for the other guys, but it is what it is. But you know what's interesting about it is the fact that the assistant coach for Germany at the time is now the head coach of Bayern Munich. It's Hansi Flick. So Correct. maybe maybe no, no coincidence there. Yes, Anyways, that probably was the most interesting thing that happened this week. But if we are to talk a little bit about the markets, if you're a trend follower like we are, we did see some corrections, at least for now, in some of the core trends that we've been seeing for the last few weeks. I'm thinking here US bonds, I'm thinking gold, silver. By the way, silver fell 15% one day this week. So not a small correction by any means and also in some of the grains, like soybean meal, it was had a sudden and pretty strong up move. So um, those are things I'm sure will come up when we talk about performance. The other thing perhaps we should talk about after we do our market wrap 
is some more quote-unquote fundamental things relating to the legendary investor Howard Marks that I came across. And I know you have a few things as well to bring up. So how was your week from a professional point of view and trading point of view? Same week, different blank. You know what I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like the the thing that happens since about six, seven, eight weeks. It's a slow grind down. I've lost close to a percent between 80 and 90 basis points, if I remember correctly. And what I really see, I mean, there is a lack of longer term trends that my system can kind of like cling to and exploit. And it's it's relatively choppy in some of the markets. Natural gas is an example. You've just mentioned silver, right? Massively up, massively down. Net gas down, down, down all the time, then sprinting up two days in a row really severely. I've tweeted a trend that I've detected in lumber, which I'm luckily long, but lumber isn't the, the largest and most liquid market, so not everybody trades that. But you know, at least this is the exception to the rule where right now there is a strong trend in that market, it seems. And then some of the other things that used to make us good money earlier this year, the bonds, for instance, when I look at the bonds, it's just back and forth. They're kind of like treading water, moving sideways for most of the time. So I'm not making a lot of money from these. The same is true for the short-term interest rate markets. So yeah, chopping it up a little bit, uh, I must say, and I'm now down more than 5% for the year. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, some of the things you mentioned. First of all, you mentioned net gas. Did you see the headline on Bloomberg came out, I think, yesterday or the day before? About the ETN? Yeah, the inverse mm -hmm. ETN that went up like, I don't know, how many thousands percent? Yes, I read it. Remember, this is the inverse 3x leveraged ETN. And natural gas rose in price. It didn't drop, right? So, but it's because Credit Suisse and Velocity Square shares, they decided to uh, stop the creation of new units. It's the mother of all short squeezes. If you've been short that thing and there are no more units going around, then you're squeezed out of that position. And that drove up the price, it seems. But yeah, thousands and thousands of percent. <laughs> Quite amazing. It is amazing, but I also I, th I also think that it teaches us a lesson. I mean, we keep on talking about the importance of liquidity and mm -hmm. and all of those things, right? And so, as an investor, it's very tempting when you see some of these ETNs or ETFs or whatever the fancy word is of these type of products. And yes, if you get it right, you sure, surely can make a lot of money. But my God, can you also be caught, you know, on the wrong side of some of these? trends and uh, or I wouldn't even call it trends but some of these massive moves and so you know I don't think we can mention it enough in our conversations and this is exactly why we trade liquid markets I know you mentioned lumber is not the most liquid market but okay it's a small part of your portfolio but I think these are some of the crazy moves you often see when markets I mean I hate to say it's, it's just generally extreme in some ways. I mean, for me, it all seems very extreme at the moment. It makes very little sense when you see where markets are trading and, and what's happening in the economy and all of those things. What's also interesting to me is, is just the fact that we've seen, I think, higher correlation than normal between hmm. some of the main asset classes, stocks and bonds, uh, and even to some extent gold. There is seems to be a higher correlation suddenly. And I just think it's setting setting up for something, let's call it special, 
in the markets, whatever special means. Yeah, I agree with that, Niels. And I mean, neither you nor I make any forecasts as to the prices of securities, equities, or, you know, their PE ratios or any of that type of stuff. But when you just stand on the sidelines and you look at that, it's kind of amazing what has happened in the last couple of weeks with, you know, Hertz and then Kodak, right? I mean, Kodak going to what, 40 bucks or 45 bucks, I don't know what it was, only to, you know, plunge back down to essentially where it started all from. Tesla, well, it is where it is, right? It announces a five to one stock split and uh, boom, you know, it's going to be cheaper at some point in a couple of days and uh, people people cheer it up and they think that's a, that's a great thing and it improves the fundamentals of the company, which of course it does not, but it's, you know, one of the reasons to buy. There's so much stuff going on. It's, as we know, these things, they can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. So you have to be careful and uh, not get your fingers burnt in these markets. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned this thing about Tesla. I guess it's one way of the analysts who were having a three hundred dollar price target for Tesla to become right. They do five, <laughs> exactly. five for one split. You um, claim it, but, um, but I'm sure exactly they'll probably claim it. Who knows? Anyways, on our side, I mean, performance-wise, very similar to what you're seeing. Small correction week again this week, and coming mainly from markets like corn and gold and silver and U.S. bonds. Interestingly enough, we we did have some tailwind from stocks, but most interestingly, and I know you wrote about this in our little internal chat, we saw some really good performance from being short JGBs, which has mm-hmm. been like the worst trade for trend followers for mm-hmm. more than a decade. Because every I time can't you try to go short, it on. <laughs> right? Every time you try to go short, it just so it tells you a little bit about tells you a little bit about some of the things actually that Howard Marks writes about or talks about in the in the article I want to talk to you about about patience and and discipline and risk management and all of those things to be able to still be there in that market when it starts to move because my god I mean if you re- if yields are going starting to go up for real in Japan then shorts will be very attractive and finally on our side we actually have made some really good money in volatility, continue to do that. So that's a little bit of a different story, of course, not really a trend-following story, but it seems to be doing well. So are you ready for some um, hard mark stuff? Yeah, sure. I mean, the the JGB thing, it really like, you know, when, when I opened that short position, I clicked the button and it submitted the order. So I didn't really, you know, I wasn't aware. Then the order sheet produced the short entry in JGBs, and I was like, "Oh no, that's yeah. that's probably going to hurt a lot." <laughs> because yeah, well, I at least fifty basis points. I, yeah. Exactly. So it's made money. Well, for now at least. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We'll see how it all pans out. But you know what? Uh, funnily enough, speaking about interest rates and the bull market potentially, and, and I use the word potentially deliberately here, coming to an end was I think there was some kind of cover on The Economist this week or last week where it just says free money. And it's kind of, you know, all of this free money, free money we have with interest rates being where they are. And usually these things typically happen or, or show up in the press just before that money isn't so free anymore. So we'll see. Anyway, so I'm going to read some of these things that Howard Marks talked about, some concepts, and then maybe we can dig into it a little bit with our own experiences. So the first question that he was replying to was, what are the two most important things an investor needs to do to succeed? And Marx replies, manage risk and understand where we are in the market cycle. 
And then Marx continues, we never know what's going to happen in the markets. We never can be sure of the outcome. But what we can do is to get the odds on our side by understanding where we are in the cycle. Managing risk, Marx believes the job of the professional investor is risk management. It is easy to make money in the markets. It is especially easy to make money when the market does well. And the market does well most of the time, he said. Making more money than average is not necessarily something that distinguishes a characteristic because some people do it merely by taking more risk than average. The measure of a great professional is making money with the risk under control. Where does risk come from? Marx believes it depends on what stage of the market cycle we're in. When we are high in the cycle, risks are high and future returns are low, he said. If we are at the low of the cycle, prospective returns are high, but the risks are low. So let's just unpack that a little bit, Marge, because it's some of the things that you and I talk about generally about on the podcast a lot. And it's interesting that someone like that also really comes from it where I think most trend followers come from. And that is, first and foremost, we're risk managers. We're not, we we don't really know what returns we're going to get, mm. but we do know how to manage risk. Exactly. We cannot control the returns, which is why we have to manage our risk. And I think that, you know, this is what we do. And this is the cornerstone of our trading style. And the forecasting and the understanding of where we are in the market cycle, I'm sure Howard Marks is Obviously, he's a very accomplished investor, no doubt about that. And, and maybe he has a gift to really identify those market cycles. When he speaks about it, to me, it sounds so simple and easy to understand. Like, you know, even I can follow along and get it. Oh, yeah, you know, there's the market. It goes up and down and there's business cycles and all that type of stuff. And obviously, when you read the books that he's written and the papers, the memos that he writes, then, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, this all is super easy to get. Now... When I step back a little from that and I said like, well, which market cycle are we in right now? My gut feeling is, is that we're like in a toppy market cycle, right? And it's kind of like everything is expensive. Interest rates are zero or below. Equity prices are super, super expensive. It feels like it. But is this really true? I don't know, you know, because maybe this market cycle goes on for another three, four five years. I mean, who knows? It could be, you know, that the central banks are just, you know, kicking the can down the road and, you know, they kick it again, they kick it again and money's free and continues to be free and everybody gets checks and, you know, they buy stocks. And so, well, then uh, then you've been wrong about a market cycle for six years, right? In my example, you think it's the top of a market cycle and maybe it is, but only six years later. And those six years, they can be very brutal. You may be losing a lot of money. You may end up not making the money that you should have been making. So we control our risk and we built systems to do that for us and to allow us to not have an opinion necessarily on where we are in the market cycle and let our systems determine where it should go. Trend following 101, right? And so the, the risk I think to us is, is that we're becoming too cute with respect to the following of our trend following models. You know, what, what's been called the stick to and all of that type of stuff. It's kind of like, yeah, we, we may worsen, very well worsen our returns and our expectancy by um, not following the model and doing something that we haven't back tested because it's not in the numbers. It's not in the sample size, right? 
And, you know, it's, it's during times like these where, yeah, I'm down close to 6% for the year. Other CTAs are having much, much better years, right? Other trend-following programs, some of the shorter ones, shorter-term ones, they're actually having really, really good years, and and I'm not there. So it's kind of like, you know, there's this itching back that you have that you should be changing your model. You should be doing something else to follow up with those guys, right, and and and, and become better. But this is not what I've tested. I don't want to just, you know, fiddle around with my system because somebody else is performing better. I think it's very important to have that, um, you know, really that foundation in the way that you think that you have to be following along. Because let's face it, let's say the shop ratio is 0.5, right, of our systems. 0.5 shop ratio system is, you know, there's so much noise and so much luck in a 0.5 distribution, shop ratio distribution, that it requires a lot of time and a lot of trades, years and years and years, right? in order to distinguish luck from skill. So we may just be in that period where, oh yeah, we're right now pretty unlucky, right? And therefore there is no reason to change the model because at some point the statistics will play out and we will be on the lucky side of the statistic again and you know just earn what we're supposed to earn. If we change the model right now, it may be the worst point in time to do that. So it's kind of like this. You have to go through these super painful periods of time which can be very long and of course they feel much longer than they are when you're through it right when you're through it you look back and it's like oh yeah that's been easy but right now it's kind of like wow that's like chewing gum it's you know it's it's really nasty and you have to kind of like walk away from your desk and say i'll do the next 100 trades in the exact same way and at some point i'll come out of that drawdown and it'll be fine again i mean you touched on a lot of really important points and so before I go on with this uh, Howard Marks article, I mean, I think, first of all, it's one thing to be having a quote-unquote quiet to down year or period if everyone else is having the same, right? But that's not the case this year, right? There's definitely a difference between trend-following approaches. And f- right now, seven, eight months into the year, as you rightly say, we're at the lower end, probably not the lowest. I'm sure some people have done much worse, but they're, you know, certainly at the lower end of the spectrum. Some people are flattish and some people are up maybe 5%. So there is a bit of dispersion. And by the way, dispersion of returns have, I think, increased in the last few years. I do think that. But I think this year in particular, it's been very clear to see, at least for me, that how certain markets, if you didn't trade them or if you traded them you with small allocations that has made a big difference but also just the speed as you say speed of entry speed of exit has had massive performance implications this year and you're absolutely right in saying that the temptation is to try and say okay how can i fix this problem of this short-term underperformance how can i always be at the top of the performance league because of course investors will ask questions and they tend to be much quicker in asking the questions when you're lagging rather than when you're leading. So I, I, I see that as well uh, on my side. And, and it is about having the faith and the confidence to say, I believe that by following my approach, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't look, right? But by sticking with my approach, um, because it's not broken, it's just having uh, a less favorable time. 
I believe that in the, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, my portfolio uh, will have increased substantially in, in value from just continuing to do the trades, as you rightly say. But it is very hard to do. And it feels, as you say, it also feels like time stand still, right? Because it's been weeks now. I remember last year when we, on our side, and I'm sure it was the same on your side, we had more positive months in a row than we've had for a long time. I mean, trend following was a lot easier last year than it has been this year. But for some reason, those periods, doesn't they don't feel quite as long as, as going through a three-month sort of quiet period or four months, whatever it is. But it actually brings me on to the next point that Marx then talks about, which is quite interesting and funny that this is where we ended up. So the next point he talks about is patience. Okay, so Marx has a well-earned reputation for being patient, but also for accepting that his timing uh, is often not perfect. How have you been able to have this patience? Is it process? Is it personality? Is it the people? What's driving the success, he's asked. And then the answer is, patience is one of the most important things in our business, Mark said. And what I like to point out is that sometimes we have a sense for what's going to happen. We never know when. Most of the important things that happens in our business are primarily uh, attributable to changes in psychology, not fundamentals. And psychology cannot be predicted and certainly cannot be timed. The first great adage that I was taught in the early 1970s was that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. And you know, we've all had that experience. I've had it many times. And we just have to live with that. If you want to be a superior investor, number one, you have to be willing to be different. Obviously, you have to depart from the average investor or from the crowd in order to be a superior investor. And if you do that, you are willing to be wrong. Deviating from the crowd cannot be done with 100% batting average. Finally, you have to be willing to look wrong because even the things that you do right directionally are not going to be right time-wise. You will look wrong. You will look wrong for one. And this is where patience comes in. Patience and the ability to live through tough periods until you are eventually proven right is extremely important, he said. But if you are in a client-facing role, like I think both you and I are from time to time, this is sometimes easier said than done. There aren't too many clients who are unfazed by stomach-churning market gyrations. Patience as an investor goes hand-in-hand with client education. And Marx continues, I was wise enough to early on condition my clients to expect me to be wrong. Client education, client preparation, and including a reasonable expectation is one of the most important things we can do, Marx said. I always say the three most important words to me are, I don't know. If a client asks me a question I don't know the answer to, I will tell them I don't know the answer. We should prepare our clients for our imperfection. If we do that, we can get through tough times. And then I want to keep the last section just because it's a little bit different. But it's funny, again, he talks about things that, again, we often talk about when it comes to trend following, right? Not knowing, always not being perfect on time, 
to me, it's just super interesting to hear someone as successful as he has been and not being a trend follower pretty much talk about the same core beliefs that we have. Yes, I, I, I think that's that's quite remarkable. And I like the fact that he says that I don't know is a good answer. I think it's the best answer that's out there because let's face it, most of the time we do not know. We don't know anything really about how any of the future is going to unfold. And I must say that, you know, I needed to learn that. Um, trend following does this with you. First of all, you need to learn how to become a good loser, you know, because 60% or whatever it is of our trades are losing trades. If you've never been used to losing, if you're a person that has grown up winning all the time, be it in sports or be it in your high school, and you've always been the best and you're doing trend following, you'll probably find it very difficult because all of a sudden you're on the other side of that winning court side, you're going to be a loser and you have to learn how to be a very good and perfect professional loser. You're not talking about Barcelona right now, are you? Well, no, I don't. I'm, I'm talking about us. And then <laughs> when you do this, because you're losing so frequently and you start to think in these trend following dimensions where you go like, well, you know, I did the trade because the signal was there. I really personally do not know where the market is going. You develop an attitude, and I think that's a very positive and beneficial attitude where you think about life and in all of the things that can happen in a clearer, more objective way. And much more from the point of pretty much anything could happen. I don't know. I can make an educated guess, but not more than that, right? Now, I, I get it that you cannot take it to an extreme where you go to a cocktail party and you start talking to people and they go like, well, Moritz is really boring to speak to because it says, I don't know all the time. People turn away from you. So at some point, I guess you have to have opinion and things. But when it comes to my money and trading and the markets, it's really, I don't know, is the, it's the answer really for the most part. I think that's a good point that even though we have one mindset when it comes to how we want to invest, right? We, we don't question things, we follow the rules. But people also know that you and I, and, and maybe not so much Jerry actually, but certainly you and I, uh, possibly Rob, we all have opinions about where we think things are going. And I, I mean, I know from interviews on CNBC and all of that stuff with, with David Harding that, that he's been pretty good at always trying to say, you know, I don't know, I mean, in a hundred different ways because they keep asking him about where's gold going. So in, in some ways, you're right. I mean, if you keep giving that as an answer, people will find it boring and you probably won't be invited back and that's fine. But in, in, in everyday life, it can be a little bit difficult never to have an opinion about especially the area of, of, that you work with? There are many people who have opinions, but who don't ever back up their opinions with money. You, you frequently bump into people that have an opinion about the markets, be it, you know, Tesla, Apple, you know, some stock, Wirecard, you name it, or the price of crude oil. They have an opinion. And when you then ask them how big their long or short position is, you know, that is in the direction of their opinion, they don't have any. And that opinion is pretty much, I mean, then we're just, you know, talking. That, that, that's a cocktail talk, right? We're, we're just doing blah, blah, blah things. Now with us, it's, we have positions in 100 different markets or, you know, 70 different markets, 50 different markets, no matter how many markets you trade. But at some point, we will have positions in those markets. The difference being is we don't necessarily have an opinion on that market. You may have one and say, yeah, I think long-term gold is going to be higher because of, the Fed printing money 
okay, that's an opinion. Right now I'm long gold, so that's in the same direction. But I could still have the opinion of saying gold is going to be higher five years from now. But if gold moves down to 1700 from 1950, where it is right now, I'll be out of my long position, period. And there's no questions asked, right? And sometimes I have positions in markets, such as, for instance, lumber, right? <laughs> I'm long lumber. I have absolutely no opinion on lumber. I don't track the market. You know, I've, I've read that because Home Depot has been selling a lot of wood to do do-it-yourselfers. Lumber prices have been increasing. Okay, so maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. But personally, I know nothing about that market. I know it's uncorrelated. It has its different behavior, trends in a different type of way, hopefully at different points in time, which it is, you know, doing right now. And therefore, I have a position in it. My opinion on it, nothing. Yeah. And of course, the importance of patience, I would say, especially in, in, in our business, where most months are down months, frankly, or most down trades or down trades, I should say, or negative trades. It's patience is really a virtue. And, and I think he's absolutely right that it's one thing to have it internally and just have to deal with it itself. But I also think it's, he's, he's right that if you do have any client-facing role as well, it's not as easy as, as people might think. So I think that's important. Yes. And there's, I think, two types of patients here. It has often been said, for instance, that Warren Buffett has a holding period of infinity and therefore he's like super patient with his positions. Yes, he does have long-term holding periods, but he doesn't have a holding period of infinity. I think just last week it came out that he's exited his position in Goldman Sachs. You know, earlier this year, he went out of the airline positions that he had on, right? So there's stuff moving. And I, I think the same is true for Howard Marks. Nobody has a, you know, infinity holding period. I think it's important that you're patient with your style. If you've found your edge or your trading style that suits you, the one that you can follow, the one that you believe in that has a demonstrably positive expectancy, let's call it like that. You need to be patient with that one and follow it through good times and bad times and not change around too much. But regarding positions, no, I mean, don't have a infinity patience here or holding period there be very impatient with your losers i would say you know that's very important to our style of trading if you know we're very patient with the winners super super impatient with losers that eat into our core capital so there is a distinction and it's an important one yeah no well said and then finally it goes on to say that marx often reminds us how critical it is not to be dominated by emotions and then he goes on to say, I think that the greatest investors I know, starting with Warren Buffett, <laughs> are emotion unemotional, he said. Most of the errors in our business are errors of emotion. Certainly, the consensus swings far too radically. We can do much better, but the starting point has to be that our emotions are under better control than those of the crowd. So, again, something that we talk a lot about, and of course, this is why we're systematic. And then finally, I just want to make one more point, and that is, he's then asked about, you know, this thing about saying that you don't know whether, if we do that, whether people might actually think that we're a little bit less credible by having this stance that we don't know what the future holds instead of people coming on CNBC or whatever and saying, oh no, this is exactly what's going to happen. Then he reminds people of a Mark Twain quote, which goes, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. That was my little contribution from 
the press today or this week? Mm, the emotional side of trading. I mean, if I'm down, I have a down year, like I've said before, between five and six percent, right? That's that's the state of the affairs right now. If my neighbor is down 10%, I find that pretty amazing. I'm very happy with my minus five, right? If all of my neighbors are losing more money than I do, then I don't get very emotional about that. I'm actually feeling on the top. But right now, a lot of my neighbors, they're up this year because they've been long stocks and you know they're, they're just looking better in their portfolios than I am. So I don't like that feeling so much. But you know, I think maybe 20 years back, I would have been a little bit more emotional about that. Right now, it's kind of like this thing where, you know, oh, yes, it's it's one observation. Let's look back in 20 years' time, who's been doing better? Take on that challenge. This is only one data point. So it comes back to this, you know, practical and technical, the practical versus technical side of trend following and the experience that you need to trade the way that we trade, that you just take this as a, you know, it's, it's a hit on the chin, Yes, I've, I'm down. Okay. Maybe by the end of the year, I'll be up and some of the other people will be down. Who knows? I mean, all of that stuff can change super quickly. But really, you have to keep your emotions in check. And yes, you know, we're, we call ourselves systematic traders. We all know that we're all discretionary traders because at some point, somebody needs to design the model. And that is a purely discretionary exercise in the way that you do it. But let's say that, you know, being a systematic trader is a trader that listens to the models and follows the models once they have been designed, right? Until change is required, a modification, involvement is required. That's what we do. And doing that uh, allows us to stay, or at least me, to stay much more unemotional about markets. Because then I, I, then I just, you know, regard it as a trade out of all of the markets that I trade. It's one out of... A big sample size, it shouldn't matter that much, this one trade. Maybe it does, but, you know, it's kind of like trading expectancies in an unemotional way. And that's the way I like it. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have something on your side that you wanted to bring up before we have a, just a few questions this week we can dive into but it's always good if you have some other topics let's have a look at the questions i always like them okay let's do that so again mike i know your question came in a long time ago but i since it is for rob i'm gonna wait until rob is back later this month and so thanks for your patience okay let's try this question from Rene. Rene says, hi, Nils and Moritz. I'm a lawyer and thankful listener of TTU. I've been trading a trend-following portfolio for three years, learning a lot. There is one element in my system I still have to figure out, and it's how not to lose too much profit when parabolic moves appear, like now in the silver and gold market. I read a book by Kevin Davey where he talks about an exit that does never give away more than 40% of a big profit. My normal systems is dungeon channels with different time frames. But the thought is that after a substantial move from entry, never give back 40% of open profit from the point of highest profit. What do you think of this kind of profit preserving and what other ideas are worthwhile to be researched for this purpose? Thanks, Rene from Netherlands. Moritz, that's a good, I mean, it's a good question, right? Because yes. it's another challenge for trend followers. And that is if you have a super mm -hmm. successful trade, 
you're kind of afraid that you're going to end up giving back a big portion of that profit. Mm -hmm. And look, I mean, the, the answer here is in the exits and how you design them. And there's not, you know, one single way that defines what an exit is. You can come up with your own exit methodology. I don't, I think all of us have different ways of exiting trades and the, say, you know, the one that is commonly spoken about is kind of like you enter a trade and you have an initial stop. The initial stop stays fixed where it is, right? And then you have a trailing stop that subsequently starts trailing, say, for instance, the low price, right, in, in relation to a long position that you have entered. So the, the price of silver in your example moves up, right? And then your trailing stop is a couple of ATRs, XATRs behind all the time, but it never goes below the initial stop. Now, if you have a fast move in the market, such as we've had with silver, this methodology leads to uh, results in the price of silver being far away from your trading stop, right? Because the ATR has expanded and, you know, your trading stop stays down there and silver is up there. So your open trade equity is at a greater risk. You have a greater give back risk. And, you know, Jerry and I, we've been saying this, you know, many times that, so, you know, we're we're happy to be quite liberal with our open trade equity. We're very, very tight-lipped with our uh, core equity, the closed equity. We don't want to lose too much of that, if anything. But I agree, it's it's a good research exercise, but you have to do it yourself. Is, you know, find a way if you want to, but backtest it properly, right? With proper sample size and everything, not just, you know, 10 sample size or something like that. Find a way that you can modify your exit strategy in such a way that maybe in the in the case of silver, if there is a faster move, that your trading stop comes a little closer to where the price action is right now. Not too much, a little bit, maybe. Research that. But like I've said, with these type of things, right, it's, it's kind of like you add another exit rule, like an additional parameter. It's kind of like, here's the initial stop, here's the trailing stop. And now there is the trailing special condition for fast markets, right? And then there's another special condition for whatever markets, right? Or another special condition for if my trade has been in the market for more than 100 days, something like that. You do too much of that, it tends to really reduce your sample size to a minimum, which is something that you must avoid. I really, I really advise against doing that. So you need to find some modification of access strategy that still has relevance for the statistical sample that you're producing so that you can look at it and say, okay, I'm looking at, I don't know, 500,000, 2,000 of these exits, and they've done, they've generated a positive effect. If you only look at 10, you may as well not do it. Yeah, I mean, there are a few things you can do. Of course, you can try and have some kind of stop that's linked to the most recent high and, and all of those good things. You can have stops that creeps up maybe a little bit faster the longer the trend is in time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be safe from an event like that but that's another way of doing it but i think Mort, i think you make a really good point and that is as soon as we start making these special type exits to cater for one type of event it can often complicate matters too much one thing i noticed i run an old paper based trend following systems that i've been running for years, it, it uh, you know it doesn't trade real money or anything like that, but it's just basic kind of trend following system. And what's interesting, it's doing incredibly well this year, really well. But what's funny about it is that the part of the portfolio that is making all the money is something. It's like two very simple, very you know quite fast, super simple 
systems that only trades a handful of markets. Of course, they're in the stock markets and the and the bond markets. So it doesn't really say anything much other than, again, diversify your uh, systems and uh, don't try to make it too complicated. I think Moritz is right on that point that it, it just makes things less predictable and reliable in the future. So anyways, thanks for your question, Rene. Okay, here's a long one from Peregrine. I've been going through some of the earlier episodes of the show and found that you sometimes discuss the topic of why trend following is not a mainstream investment strategy. This ties in quite nicely with my previous question. Um, so let's go with the previous question first. So the first question uh, from Peregrine is, do you have any evidence of superior returns from managers who spend time trying to identify the kinds of trends they would like to agree with? For example, I would like to agree with long rates and short credit trends when equities are doing poorly, or I would like to agree with long equities that have shown consistent earnings growth for the last 10 years and short the equities which have not. Okay, so that's the first question. Oh, let me just go with that one first, uh, Peregrine, and that is, I don't think we think about agreeing with, uh, like we've spoken about today on, on, on our recording, we don't try to create systems that we have to agree with. We just look at the data, we analyze the price, and as Morris said earlier today, when he got a short sig signal in JGBs, he probably didn't think that that's going to turn out to be a great trade. So we're not trying to agree with the trades we put on. We just follow the rules. So so I don't think that, that you know. But anyway, so let me go on to your next question, then Moritz can chime in here. If we think of markets as vehicles to express our opinions about the relative value of different assets when uh, then describing a strategy which has no opinion could leave an investor feeling uneasy. Although I suspect subconsciously, especially after you present them with a chart of trend following track record. I think I would frame it as a strategy which seeks to find opportunities to agree with other market participants. Perhaps you could discuss this in the context of my original question, okay? In particular, I think that this could serve as an elegant explanation of why your systems might put on trades that you disagree with. Your system knows what you don't know, i.e. what other market participants know, but that you don't know. Okay, I th this is a complicated question, Peregrine. Maybe I didn't read it well either, but but I think what you're saying, and, and, and maybe if, at least from my point of view, what you're trying to say is that trend following has a way of detecting what other people, I wouldn't say the word agree really, but... But clearly, there is a crowding effect, right? That that we need a trend to develop. So we need other people to essentially be doing something that pushes the price in the direction of our signal. But I don't know. And and yes, you can call it that they you agree with a trade, but that's not the way I think about it. I don't think it's the way Moritz think about it. For us, it's just a price breakout. It's 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 a kind of momentum that happens from, of course, other people doing the same thing to some extent, but not necessarily for the same reasons. I don't know, Mort. I mean, this is a complicated one. I really wish to give Peregrine yes. some constructive feedback here, but I think I'm okay. struggling a little bit with the question. 
Yeah, but I mean, you, you're right in saying that, you know, what we want, I mean, ideally we get onto a trend at the very early stages, if ever that happens. We as long-term trend followers, we sometimes seems to be very late to the party, but let's say, you know, we get on at an earlier stage and then everybody agrees with our position. Well, that's a great thing, right? Because that's when we make money. So we, we kind of like, we need that. We need the market to um, be on our side or come to our side of the trade for us to make money. In essence, you want the market to agree with your position, agree, quote unquote, right? The price action needs to uh, to play out that way. As for me, do I need slash want the position to agree with any of the beliefs or opinions, if I ever have those about markets? No, absolutely not. Because this is, I cannot even backtest that. I cannot backtest what, what my opinion on any market would have been 20 years ago. I don't know that, right? And you may have the opinion today, as you were mentioning in your question at the very beginning, that if equities go down, bonds should be going up. Yes, um, we've observed that time and time again for the past couple of years, maybe even decades. But there is no guarantee, there's no law written down in any way that this will always be the case, right? And, and you know, the times may be so special that at some point equities go down and bonds go down as well. And then all of a sudden your beliefs are challenged and the price tells you a different story. The market tell, gives you a very different picture. And you need to be in, in a position then to react and, and not become so steadfast in your beliefs that you don't change and your losses become too great. So this is the reason why we're keeping it out of our systems. And we just, you know, play the dies and we take them as they fall. Yeah, and I also think that actually agreeing with your trade goes a little bit against the core philosophy of what we do because as, as soon as you have to agree with something i think you have an emotional connection it's all it's one of the things we always say you know we don't want to fall in love with our positions right yes so for us it's really just something that we do as because the system tells us to do it or the rules tells us to do it so but i think what what your question shows uh peregrine which i think a lot of people struggle with and that is this thing about how can I invest in something that I don't believe in or agree with, right? How, for example, people could have a core belief saying you can't make money from just buying when markets go up and selling when markets go down, trend following 101. I mean, it it makes no sense that you can make money long term by doing something as simple as that. But you can. The evidence shows that you can. Okay, it takes a little bit more than, you know, thought and designing the systems and the risk management and all those things. But basically, all the evidence shows that you can make money from following relatively simple rules. But that may not be a belief that everybody holds. And therefore, trend following may be something that they will never invest in. So I think we have to be really careful about how we look at investments in general. Are we doing it because we want to feel good? Are we doing it because we think it's fun? Are we doing it because we want to achieve a result in a very unemotional way? I think the most thing that, I mean, I think the things that Moritz and I and Jerry and, and everybody else that we know in, in our industry believe in is that letting your winners run, cutting your losses short, and a few other, you know, managing your risk, a, a few other core beliefs is something that we have to we have to agree with it. We have to believe in it. But then once we have those core beliefs expressed in our set of rules, 
we don't really have to be, uh, agree with every single trade along the way. We don't even have to have an opinion, as Moritz said about Lumber. I mean, he has no opinion. I think most positions that we hold, I would have no opinion about them. But there are certain things where I do have opinions about it and where it can be hard. And I think this is the challenge. I think for those investors who are able to look inside a trend-following portfolio and see, for example, that we're getting long again now in equities and everything feels a little bit frothy and, and you know we don't really think this bull market can continue. But as we talked about earlier, who knows? I mean, I don't personally necessarily think that the markets are going to go massively higher given what's happening in the economy, but my opinion is pretty irrelevant because I could be massively wrong. Something could trigger another great move up in markets. It's just not my belief, but it doesn't affect how we invest in any way, shape or form. Now, I have another one, another question for you. Cool. Uh, you're going to enjoy this, Moritz. <laughs> I have actually, I have to say, I have sent a couple of follow-up questions to, I think your name is uh, pronounced Marigius. Not Moritz, but Marigius or some. I ho- I'm sorry if I, I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. But Mauritius is asking about a good way of measuring performance, right? So he's definitely making some investments. I'm trying to, I was trying to figure out before our, our recording today what exactly Mauritius is investing in. But he's essentially asking whether the compound annual growth rate as a calculation metrics is a good, good way of calculating performance. But what he really wants to do is to calculate the monthly growth rate. And then he says, and now now I'm quoting from the email, my idea behind this is to set a goal of to grow my portfolio 10% monthly. Great idea. Yeah. I want to estimate how big my portfolio might be in a year, two, 10, if I keep up my goal. My question is, if this is a good methodology to track my own performance, and if so, what is a good growth rate? So far, I grow my portfolio at an 11% monthly rate, but it might be beginner's luck and crazy times in the market. So I want to have a better understanding of what is realistic in the years ahead. So of course, I did go back and try to get a few more details from you because the numbers you mentioned, Marigis, is somewhat higher than what we usually think about because 10% per month is an incredibly high return. So I want to hear from you more. It's about whether you think it's the right metrics to use, but I do want to just say from my point of view, I don't know if people, if, if okay, so I, the other question I had for you, uh, Marie, just which I don't know the answer to when we're recording right now is what you're investing in. So clearly if you're saying, well, I'm only investing in Tesla stocks, okay, then 10% a month, maybe not that impossible to get. But if you're like us investing for the long term, we're not looking to make 10% a month, right? More likely we're looking to make 15% per year. So a completely different number than what you are. And the problem I have or the caution I want to extend to you is that if you're willing to, or if you're looking to make 10% a month or more, then you must be running some pretty hefty risks, in my opinion. And that also works the other way around. And so 
That's why I also send you an email saying, you know, what kind of volatility are you getting? But also, as you say, this could be beginner's luck. I mean, you could have started six weeks ago, for all I know. I don't know how long you've been able to do 11% a month, which is fantastic, and congratulations on that. But as you can hear, it's probably something I would more characterize as speculation, and there's nothing wrong with speculation, uh, not at all, more so than the word investing. But let's hear it from you, Moritz. What are your thoughts? Well, um, 10% a month is, is fantastic. I mean, just, you know, look at the numbers or, or do, the, do the, the math. If you just do simple compounding, you know, you do this to the power of 12, right? This is your yearly return, your annual return, which is, um, I just did it here. It's, uh, you know, your portfolio would grow from $100 to $313 within a year, one single year, if you do 10% a month, right? And if you compound it, this is continuous compounding. If you do that for another 10 years in the same manner, I mean, you know, the numbers don't even fit on the screen anymore. You will be a billionaire, right? So go for it. I I don't think it's realistic, but you may maybe you found a strategy that does 10%, 10% a month. And uh, if you do, then I think you should keep it very close to your chest and tell nobody about it and uh, enjoy it. But I, I don't think it's it's that easy to do. And you know, as far as I think a part of the question was what type of risk measures or performance measures should one use, right? I mean, yes, you can obviously calculate your KGAR or annualized rate of return and any of these type of things. And it depends on whether you use discrete compounding or continuous compounding. It, at the end of the day, none of that really matters too much. Then it's about the risk adjusted returns. How do you put your return in relation to the risk that you have taken and which has been realized? And most people here equate risk with volatility because volatility is what you can see in the time series of your track record, whereas risk, risk that you have taken is not part of the time series, right? It's not part of the daily return in that sense. It's, it's more like the volatility that plays out. And of course, you know, there's strategies that don't lend themselves very well to that type of measurement because their distributions aren't Gaussian. And we, for instance, are part of the non-Gaussian family, right? We have a tailed, a skewed distribution. So when you do things such as sharp ratio, sharp ratio tends to penalize uh, trend-following CTAs. It tends to favor, for instance, uh, strategies such as uh, systematic short vol, on the other hand. But there are so many. There's, you know, uh, the Kalma ratio, there's an omega ratio, there's the gain-to-pain ratio. Pick your poison. I don't think that it matters all too much. At least this is, you know, over the years that I've been looking at these type of things, I don't think it matters all that much. You can actually use the Sharpe ratio. Why? Because people are familiar with it. People know what it is. It's kind of like, you know, even if you don't take the risk-free rate of return into account, which right now is kind of like the case anyways, it would be called the information ratio. So it's just the annualized rate of return divided by the realized volatility, just the ratio of those two gives you a good idea, a first idea about the risk-adjusted returns. And if you want to be more cute about it and take into account the shape of the distribution, then, you know, look at some other things. By the way, there is a book that I can really recommend, which is um, written by Jack Schwager, who, by the way, we'll have on our show in a couple of months' time. 
Uh, it's called Market Sense and Nonsense. And Jack is, as you all know from Market Wizards, a very, very gifted writer. And in this book, Market Sense and Nonsense, he has a closer look at the different performance measures, you know, what they say, how you should interpret them, where they make sense, and where they are actually nonsense, right? And I don't think anybody is helped. Like when you see these fact sheets and you have 10 different type of risk-adjust performance measures, in my experience, when I show this to clients, most of them know what a sharp ratio is. They don't know any of the other things. They may have heard about omega ratio. They don't know how to interpret it. They may know about the Kalmar ratio. They don't know what it is. They couldn't write it down and say it's that, right? Or the Sortino ratio or downside deviation or any of that type of stuff. So it's kind of like if nobody uses it, it's kind of like a dead language. You're putting something on a fact sheet that nobody can actually handle. So you may as well skip it. And you may be better off just saying, look, this is the sharp ratio or the information ratio. We know it has shortcomings, but it's ballpark here, right? And be fine with that. Cool. Thanks for the question, nevertheless. And by the way, I mean, I think it's fantastic if you, and I wouldn't worry about too much about how to calculate things. If you know how to make 10% a month, yeah, then that's, that's all true. you need to focus on. However, I would suggest that you, so you don't get disappointed in the long run, maybe find a lower number that will still make you a very wealthy investor if you can achieve that. So, uh, so best of luck with that. Speaking about performance, Times have changed a little bit, not just for us, but uh, also for the industry because it was a down week across the board. So now we have the Beta 50 index down 34 bips for the month of uh, August, as of Thursday, by the way, and down 22 bips for the year. Sockgen CT index is down 1.1% for the month, down 1.3% for the year. The trend index or the trend followers index is down 1.73 for the month of August up just uh, 43 basis points for the year. And the SockGen short terms traders index is also down this month, down quarter percent, but still up 3.3% for the year. MSCI World Index is back in the black for the year, believe it or not, up 3.4% already in August and now up 1.09% for the year. Who'd have, who would have believed that on the 23rd of March? <laughs> just shows you how Nobody. unpredictable the... <laughs> yeah. Shows you how unpredictable things are. Any final thoughts, Moritz, as we come to a close of another conversation? No, this has been good. Thank you. Thank you for the questions. I always like them. Yes, questions, uh, we uh, really do enjoy them. And if you want to email us some more, please do it to info at toptradersunplugged.com. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter, where we also share some information from time to time that we find interesting but from Moritz and me thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week in the meantime stay safe thanks for listening to the systematic investor podcast series if you enjoy this series go on over to itunes and leave an honest rating and review and be sure to listen to all the other episodes from top traders unplugged if you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.